and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I read about baseball for The Athletic, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. And Doug, this week on Starkville, we're continuing our beloved tradition of inviting yet another former manager of yours to be our guest on the show. That'd be our friend, Buck Showwater, who managed you in Texas and Doug, is there anything you're worried that Buck might reveal about you that you've managed to sweep under the carpet for the last 17 years? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, probably quite a bit. So I'm going to have to, <laughs> you know, make sure the mute button's working pretty well. But uh, I I know he has a lot of thoughts. I had a blast playing for him in Texas. He was highly entertaining, creative, thought of just everything under the sun, loved to talk baseball. And um, yeah, just, I, I mean, we weren't very good, but he kept it fun. And since we had a team that had a lot of strong talent and egos, of course, you know, with A-Rod and, and Juan Gonzalez and Carl Everett and Michael Young, really good team. He uh, he just kind of kept it, kept it light, kept it fun. So I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. Buck is brilliant and entertaining, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to him for many reasons. Hey, here's one more. He's actually lived in Starkville. All right, so it's the other Starkville, the Starkville that most people refer to as the real Starkville, <laughs> because Buck, of course, went to school at Mississippi State, but maybe he'll have some tips for us about how to spruce up this place. Yeah. Who knows? Spice right? it up. Yeah. Hey, before we bring in Buck, though, uh, we just celebrated Stadium Week at The Athletic, uh, and since for some reason nobody asked us about our favorite ballparks, yeah. I think we should ask each other. So, Doug, uh, you played baseball in many a ballpark. What was your very favorite park to play in? All right, I, I'm gonna. Have, I have to split this because. All right, oh let's God. let's just talk Pick about a park. Well, <laughs> let's talk about a park where I hit well. Because if you're a player, all you care about is where do I hit well. If you hit 450, <laughs> I love that park. So you know, a place like Shea Stadium, although the numbers weren't off the charts totally, I just I loved hitting there because. For one, I was kind of beating up on my hometown team growing up in Jersey. <clears throat> that, that was fun. You know, Al Leiter had bragging rights over Jersey battles. That was that was exciting. Uh, so that that definitely ranks up. And I think for the just the enjoyment, uh, Wrigley Field, definitely just a beauty, uh, cathedral style, the nostalgia, the history. Love going there with the organ and the grass. And uh, so, yeah. So I try to keep it simple. But yes. I know Shea is not exactly going to jump off the page as a beautiful <laughs> architectural, but I just, I love playing there. I just love playing uh, there to uh, something about the rivalry of growing up in Jersey. It wasn't the auto body shop ambiance. <laughs> or, like if you ever needed any fender work, 
No, she was yes. the place to be. Yeah, I was trying to time. knock the fender off by, <laughs> after I hit the ball. That that was my goal. <laughs> oh, I get it. Yeah, you know, you, you only batted, quote-unquote, 289 at, at Shea. Um, like, actually, among stadiums where you had at least 50 plate appearances, you were better at Camden Yards. You hit 380 there. Uh, Beautiful the park. Old, the old Bush in St. Louis, you hit 366 there. But also uh, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, Wrigley, Arlington, Texas, Arizona, Coors, you hit over 300 in every one of those. Do you ever actually look at your stats? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not as much as I should. But it, that was more of a feel thing. And, you know, it just the I had a lot of power in Shea. I don't know why. You know, I, uh, Rick Reed. Remember Rick Reed? Yeah. And Bobby Jones and Lighter. I don't know. I just, I, you know, I was a stronger person when I walked into Shea. Uh, but yeah, and, and some of his matchups, like Mark Pekaisik, the, the sinker baller with the Cardinals, I had three home runs off of him. I don't know why, but for some reason I did. So that made St. Louis look really good. But yeah, I, try, I tried to spread the wealth. My goal at one point was to hit a home run at every ballpark. And uh, even though I only had 59 of them, I wanted to be an equal opportunity home run guy. And I did pretty well. I hit in quite a few different stadiums. Uh, we have to look that up at some point, but... Uh, I did enjoy trying to get the trot on in different cities in uh, America and North America. Yeah, I, mean, I could start going through the ones you missed, but we're, we're not going to do that <laughs> now. Uh, I guarantee if you ever had to ride that creaky press elevator at Shea, it would not be number one on any list. <laughs> right. uh, but enough of Shea, all right? Now, here's my favorite, San Francisco. Uh, it's now Oracle Park, formerly AT&T Park, but it's the best Best view, best food, best ballpark atmosphere, best kayaks, best giant Coke bottle, best three hours of smelling those garlic fries cooking. Oh, my God. And definitely the best press box. Uh, it was so close to the action. Only one level of stairs up from the clubhouses. So perfect, man. Uh, like, you know I love ballparks. Uh, I, I have probably 20 that I just love going to, but Oracle Park, perfect, Doug. The word is perfect. <laughs> Maybe not if you hit left-handed, your name was not Barry Bonds. Otherwise, yeah. perfect. Well, I'll tell you, Oracle, I mean, yeah, like PNC. I mean, there's some architectural genius out there. So I felt fortunate. But the the challenge, I don't know, they probably changed this, so I don't want to speak too soon. But at, then was a at and or Pac Bell or all the names it's had. Uh, when you when you go up the stairs from the lo locker room from the dugout up back to the locker room, there's a there's an area where fans I don't know if they're season ticket holders special fans that would kind of be so just roped off. It was very accessible, right. and then you had to cross the the concourse into the locker room. They were on you, man. They were they were ruthless. <laughs> it was like, oh, this is. And I was trying to imagine if I play for the Dodgers, how this must go. So that that was that was a little bit stressful crossing the concourse to go up and down the stairs. So that 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 took a point or two off of uh, what is a absolute gorgeous park. So I give them everything else, but that was that was a little stressful for a, for a player. Yeah, I've had some I've had some nights there trying to get from one clubhouse to the other. That visitors clubhouse way out there in the corner, and yeah. people are roaming that concourse and going home or stopping to socialize and it could get a little challenging. But I don't care. Perfect. That's the word. <laughs> All right, let's welcome in our distinguished guest this week, one of the great managers of his generation. 
our former colleague at ESPN, and now an analyst on the Yes Network, uh, not to mention right. former manager of Mr. Doug Glanville. It's Buck Showalter, ladies and gentlemen. Buck, welcome to Starkville. How are you? How are you guys doing? How are you guys doing? This is my first time ever using earpods. I feel real modern. I just want you to know. <laughs> you are so futuristic. Uh, hey, you know, Buck, these are strange times in baseball. We're going to count on you to help us make sense of them. But first, I want you to know you are the first <laughs> right. visitor to this Starkville who actually once lived in the other Starkville, the real Starkville. So here's a question. Is there a feature to the original Starkville you'd like to see us reconstruct here in our Starkville? Well, first of all, Jason, if you're going to use the name Starkville, you got to understand that there it's called Stark Vegas. All right. Fair enough. What stays in Stark Vegas <laughs> happens. Stark, Stark yeah. Vegas. And, it, right. and, and let's put it, when I went there, it was very appropriately named. And it was a dry county. <laughs> a dry county. Okay. But now, now it, it, it is some kind of place. It's special. And now they got uh, they got Mike Leach there who's going to keep things hopping and Lane Kiffin over at Ole Miss. Yeah. So they're going to really have some fun there uh, if they can ever get back on the field. Okay, so we need to we need to bring more fun here. Yeah, we, what Stark Vegas. Stark Vegas. Well, <laughs> bring it. Uh, what happens in our Starkville yeah, does not good. stay in Starkville, though. It's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what's funny there? I'll tell you a quick story. It's you know, they've led the nation in attendance like 20 years, it seems like. And their stadium, which was the best in the country, kind of got behind the times. If, if anybody sees some of these stadiums in the Southeastern Conference they're building now. So they spent like $60 million to make it to the top of the shelf again. They put these lofts in left field, like little apartments. About I guess there's about eight of them. So when Mike Leach took the job at Mississippi State for the football team last year, <laughs> Uh, they said, here, Coach, uh, oh, you can stay God. out here in one of these lofts for two weeks <laughs> until you can find a house or whatever. Well, he, he loved he loved it so much because it's overlooking the football field. On, I mean, the practice field, the football <laughs> right. practice field on the backside. And the, and the alumni can't get him out of there now. He goes, hey, this is all I need. Right? <laughs> he said, I got a baseball field on one side and a football practice field That's on it. the other side. <laughs> he doesn't need a view of the beach. No, not in He's got all he needs there. Not in Starkville. No. No, that'd be hard. That would be hard. All right, all right, let's talk some baseball. Now, Buck, I always tell you, the thing that amazed me most about you as a manager was it felt, at least to me, <laughs> like there was nothing that came along that you hadn't thought about, that you weren't ready for. But I'm going to guess you never had to deal with anything quite like this. So if you were managing a team right now, how would you go about getting that team ready for this 60-game season? Well, you know, uh, you do go through periods of the season where the flu or a bad cold goes through your clubhouse. And I know I got in trouble one time in Boston. I just said something. They were talking a couple of guys were out for the Red Sox. Like, they were the only team that ever had somebody sick in their clubhouse. <laughs> you know, I was saying, listen, everybody else gets that. But, you know, this is a different – deal you know when we played the game with nobody in the stands the one thing that hit me when we were having the uh you know the unrest there in, in baltimore the thing that hit me was that you know the novelty of this would wear off if you did it every day and yeah you know it's so important people don't realize fans in the stands you come off a tough game a 
a day game, night game, this and that. You, when you come to the ballpark, you got to know that what you're doing matters and what you're doing, there's some emotion to the moment. I just worry, Jason and, and Dougie, that if after four or five days and, and you're just you're hearing balls clang around in the empty stadium, you know, the, the teams that are self-starters and the teams that are real self-motivated, uh, I remember coming up the runway saying, you know, well, we're going to be pretty good because our guys were ready to play. It really impressed me how our guys locked in. But it wasn't – I remember saying to myself, boy, this is not something you want to do every day because it's just – you know, players are creatures of habit and routine. No, there's no sport that has more routine than maybe baseball. And when you take players out of that routine and that comfort zone, that's why I was so protective of trying to protect their things that let them be a team. But this is uncharted territory. I mean, I, anybody that sits there and tries to say they're an expert on what's going to happen, because uh, the curiosity, uh, you know, is only going to last so long. Yeah, I mean, I know in 1995 you had to get a team ready in three oh. weeks, but that was different. That was well, different. It, there was it, still going to be pretty close to a regular season. Well, it was, but it wasn't. You know, we went, we mm-hmm. broke camp with the replacement players, the low point of my career. You know, the coaches right. and managers, it was yeah. awful. I mean, it was awful. And so, you know, we're in Colorado playing what I think was the first game at the new Coors Field, I believe. I'm not sure. And the seventh inning. Five, that's right. Yeah, and word comes up in the dugout in the seventh inning. They had settled a strike, and we were headed back to Fort Lauderdale. Okay? So I'm trying to mask my enthusiasm while these guys were playing the last game of their professional career, and we were awful because Mr. Steinberg had told Gene Michael, don't worry about it. You're not going to – my sources tell me we're not going to even play. They'll get it settled. Well, guess what? The last three days, he sent four scouts to the Mexican League to find some players because we couldn't beat anybody. So the, the ball goes through the second baseman's legs to end the game, and we're tearing off our jerseys going up the runway. Can't wait to get out of there. But, you know, when we got to wow. spring training, the biggest mistake I, I saw people making was moving too fast with their pitchers, you know, thinking they could start ahead of the game. And I think that's the guys that can, if they play, and I'm hoping they do, but the people that can keep their pitchers healthy are going to, are going to really uh, prosper by it. And then, Buck, I know we've talked a lot about even something like roster construction. I remember one spring training, you, you talked about how AAA now has become this sort of you know revolving door where you're depending on your depth to continue into the minor leagues. So if you think about the 60-game mm-hmm. sprint, I mean, how do you see uh, roster construction and the importance of how you approach the game in this shorter 60-game schedule versus a full season? Well, Doug, I find it fascinating. I really do that. Uh, I mean, how I, I was thinking the other night, how would you like to have a pure sprinter? Say, remember when Herb Washington and who was the other guy? There was another guy that was a track yeah. star. Who was it? Come on, guys. Yeah, like, well, I know Ronaldo Nehemiah in football, right? Yeah, he just yeah. Went out and they, they just, but but, but what, what a weapon that would be in your extra inning games to put this guy on second base. And, you know, is it worth the carry? And then somebody says, well, the Yankees played 11 extra inning games last year. I, I said, okay, do the math. That's about four. How'd you like to win all four of those games going into the season? But little things like that where you, you know, the roster management is fascinating because you're looking for uh, versatile players. I, that's what I would be looking for. And that's why I think the Yankees have such advantage. They have so many players that can play multiple positions that, 
you know, someone's going to go down. It's a given. Someone's going to be pulled from the roster. And the versatility of your club's going to be paramount. You know, guys that can play shortstop and second base, guys that can play all the outfield positions, somebody can play both corner positions. And your depth is going to be paramount. You know, AAA nowadays is just a kind of a taxi squad for the big leagues. You're, you're real prospects for the most part in double A. If you, if you can really play, you're not going to stay in triple A very long. And um, so I'd be, I think that's what I'm worried about too, is that double A uh, level of play where you really find out about a guy's a prospect is going to be eliminated. Yeah. I don't even know how teams are going to figure out what's going on in their taxi squad, right? There's, there's no stats, there's no video. There's, there's very few people going in and out of there. Um, you mean like a scout, maybe? Yeah, there's like maybe no opposing scouts at all. None. Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't, you know, advanced scouting is going to be all, you know, it's funny. I've, I've talked to Aaron Boone two or three times, just kind of bouncing some things off each other. And, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking out loud the other day. I said, okay, with all this video and all these – uh, cameras in the in the stadiums and people practicing, you know, you know how important bunt defense and different and pickoffs things like that are going to be. But you know, I always wanted 15 private minutes with my team in the morning at spring training. It may tick off a couple of the media guys, but you know, I think they respected that I needed some time to put in signs and put in, you know, how we're going to do our bunt defenses. And just about every club does them a little different. But you know. Nowadays, you got the Big Brother watching everywhere with cameras, and you can't do it in the clubhouse because you got to practically do it on the field. You know where do you do this at? I mean, these people. Yeah. I mean, do they keep? You know, now with some teams that really got in trouble in the last year or two, you know, you're 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 doubly suspicious. I was actually just going to ask you about this. You know, everybody in baseball, uh, like we're all such creatures of routine and habit. Now you've got players, coaches, managers being asked to abandon routines and habits mm-hmm. that they've done their whole mm-hmm. lives. Now, how hard is that going to be? And, and as you just said, not just for players, for managers who can't invite players into their office or even hold a team meeting in the clubhouse. I, I, I have a tough time with it. You know, that communication is paramount. And really that, that's what separated managers was their ability to communicate their message and and to listen, you know, you know, I always go, Hey, here's how we're thinking about doing this. You know, our, our routine in the morning, we're going over, say a bunt defense, you know, we start in the film room and I found out that we would, we, we, we put together these big videotapes on the six team defenses and, uh, of people in the big leagues, hopefully our guys doing it right, doing it wrong. And then this, here's how we think we're doing it. You guys have a better way. I want to hear what you think. JJ Hardy would always put a little different spin on something and you, tweak things according to the abilities of your players. You know, if I got Mattingly playing first base, I want him handling the first throw from the cutoff down the right field corner, not the second base, because he could really throw. You know, you tweak these things. But now, how do you get this message across? How do you not only talk to the players, but have them talk to you? I think that's more important than you talking to them, that, that you hear what's going on from them every day. And now the best listeners, you know, when you're in the dugout, and you're, you know, you're going to have to be able to listen what the tenor is and uh, and what's being said. Well, and Buck, that would work. Well, I mean, Buck, you know, yeah. now, of course, I have to bring back our 2003 meetings here now. 
uh, because uh, I remember like, okay, so the Mariners come in town. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe you could describe, you remember the boardroom we had set up in Texas? On, on what you, what you, okay, yeah. so what, what was in that room, if you recall? Well, basically we had two, we, we had two tiers because I wanted the front row, the back row, everybody to be able to see. Yeah. And we had a dry, dry raceable board and we had a video. And, you know, I found Doug through the years that I don't care how old you are, the attention span, if, if I wanted it to be something guys look forward to going to, you know, it, it, there might be something kind of light at the end of it. And, but it was not some, oh gosh, we got to go to another advancement. It's nothing worse than sitting around here and some guy talk about up and away and down and in, <laughs> this and that, whatever. I, I, I wanted them to have the input. Hey, here's what we're thinking. Here's what we're seeing. And if you try to get everything that you've been told by advanced scouting into that meeting, you're going to, it's going to take an hour and you're going to defeat your purpose. So you pick out what's important for the players to know going in that the only thing that challenges them is the game itself and the competition. And there's some things that you'll know that they may not know and they'll trust you to bring it out if you need to. But I, I wanted that to be almost entertainment. You know, I want them to uh, you know get in early, get a seat. This is going to be fun. We're going to talk about the opposition and we're going to talk about some, some good things we did in the past series and some things that we need to do a little differently. Yeah and identifying what, what made us win a game, what made us lose it. I hope that's how you remember. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm thinking the – okay, so let's break it down. So you came up to me one time and said, you know, where, I know you're, where's your dad from again? You know, I was like, all right, Trinidad, where's your family from? So it was Trinidad and Tobago. So when you walk in, it was, it was the United Nations. It was the UN. So he yeah. had flags yeah. from all yeah. the countries that were represented on the team. <laughs> he had a – you had yeah. – you know how hard that was. Uh, I know, I know. You know how I know you had to order the flags. The club, the the club, the hating me. I said, okay, I want to know the. We went over everybody's background. So when they walked in there, and if you remember, we had this huge map of yes. the world, and we had a pin. We had a we had a pin of each player where where they originated from. So everyone felt like, you know, it was important to me when I was in Oneonta to walk up to a guy who'd been drafted in the twenty eighth round and go. Uh, Hey, how's the Jaguars going to do this year? You leave them in good shape, and it may be a Division three college. Its colors are black and gold, and and their nicknames the Jaguars. But to have that player say, "Hey, this guy's really—I'm the 28th round, but this guy's treating me like I'm the first round pick." It was important for them to, you know, and that's how you. But I want our players to know you're not alone on this earth. You're not the only ones that can play the game from uh, Little Georgia. I mean, there's a guy from uh, the middle of Columbia that had to fight his way. You know, I used to have people, hey, tell me your story. Tell our, your teammates your story of how you got to this level. And I, I think that's how, that's the team building part of it that I think they're going to miss. Yeah, I mean, it, and you, it did, it mattered. I mean, you had the podium at the, the base, right? And and we would go over players. Yeah. And the thing that I found so compelling is you, it wasn't just like you said, all right, move to the right with two strikes. You knew, I mean, you had you had spies. You had like John Olerud relaying stuff on. He's like, yeah, I talked to John and he told me this, this guy's distracted because, uh, I mean, it, it was deep. So, but I thought that everybody felt uh, that they could contribute to the strategy. And, and we literally felt like we, are, we weren't playing the Mariners. We were invading Seattle. And I thought that was, uh, it was fun. And now the other thing you did is when the meeting started, the doors locked and I got locked out once. I, I, and, and, it, and, it, and it was an automatic, it was an automatic fine too. It was like, I was like, oh, there was, you did not, you're like, it's starting at 3.30. But, 
Hey, regardless of, of your of your uh, veteran status, like in spring training, I put up this big thing of service time, and I said, guys, all tiebreakers on any decision. Hey, can I drive to Fort Myers and for this game instead of taking the bus? You look down the service time. Yes, you can, Doug. You've got ten years in, and you look. I said, you want to know where you fit on the pecking order? Look at the service time thing, and I, I think players understood that and respect that they should have for people. That have been playing this, but you know, we started meetings in spring training like with the coaching staff, like seven or eight or whatever. It may have been earlier than that, but you know, we'd sit there with this clock, and the first thing we do is synchronize all our watches so that we're all on the same time. And then when eight o'clock clicked over to eight o'clock, the trainer would reach over and lock the door. And you'd be surprised how quickly people understand that if you're on time, you're late. Yep. yep. And but you know, I, if you thought I tell you, you're talking about entertaining though, the meetings that we would have in the mornings with the coaches' staff and all the minor league personnel in town. I mean, in the camp, you know, I used to stir the pot. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I used to kind of throw <laughs> some things out there that I knew were wrong, and see if someone was going to say, "Buck, all due respect, I don't agree," and here's why. You know, I learned that from Steinbrenner. If, if Mr. Steinbrenner knew that he could run something through you, you were going to agree on everything. You had no chance. <laughs> you know, and I love that people wanted to stand up and say, Buck, you know, over in Toronto last year, we ran a bunt defense at first and second like this. And we would tweak something every year. Hey, that's a better way. But one of my pet peeves was the people that would – I said, anybody got a better way to do it? Everybody agree this is the best way to run a relay with a man on first and first and second. I mean, man on first with two outs, extra base hitting right center field. Yes. But, Doug, if we go out there on the field and some coach – is over there talking and whispering, well, I don't know, maybe we should have done it this way. Maybe we'll do it. Uh-uh, you had your chance this morning, and we really wanted you to give us input, but you waited until nobody could hear your voice, and I call it sympathetic ears. You know, you got to eliminate the sympathetic ears to BS that goes on. You know, you're all going to have a, a big voice in this, but make sure you voice it in the right place because when players start seeing – that coaches are divided on a field about how to do something, you got a problem. But, you know, the first thing we would do is we would go over it inside. You know, this is exactly how we're going to do it. This is play one. This is two and three in a bunt defense with first and second. And we're going to go on the field. We're going to execute it. And this is how we want a swing and bunt done with a man, with you know, t- between the first baseman and the pitcher. The pitcher's going to attack the ball, and the first baseman's going to retreat to the bag. Because how many times do you see the first baseman go get that ball and he's got nobody to give it to? Yep. So those are things you cover inside, and then you execute them on the field, and then you come back to them in about a week and see if everybody's retained them. Okay, you got my juices flowing now. <laughs> uh, you know, there's nothing I love more than a good Buck Showalter team building Absolutely. story. The clubby's going out there to buy 28 flags. That is what. You know what's funny? You know what's funny is I was trying to figure out a way. We had problems, especially with the young Latin kids to try to slow their clock down. You know, you hear veteran scouts all the time say, he's got a great clock. J.J. Hardy had a great clock. Mike Gago had a great <laughs> clock. And they just knew there was a feel for And that was a big thing with Manny going to third base was slowing his clock down. So I said, how do we teach these kids, especially in instruction <laughs> league? So we, we, we got a water polo clock. It had to be water polo so, so that if it rained, and we were working in the rain, it wouldn't short out. And we put it behind first base, and today we're going to do average runner 4-3 down the line in the big leagues. It may be more than that now because guys don't run as often. So you put it back there, and you and you started it at 4-3, and you clicked it back, and there was a big buzzer that would go off when it hit zero. 
<laughs> and these guys, these guys would go real fast and throw him out. And I go, look, you had another second and a half. Why did you rush so much? Because professional athletes make mistakes when they hurry. And anytime you can take them out of that comfort zone as an offensive player, they're going to make mistakes. And uh, if you go back through all mistakes, guys got out of rhythm. So trying to show that. So we would take an infield sometimes with a 3-9 runner. And then we would take an infield with a 4-8 runner. And the tempo would be completely different. If you were having a drag, drag butt meeting, a drag butt, uh, you know, guys are just dragging ass around in a spring training, which happens. All you got to do is turn that clock on about 3-8 and watch yeah, the football right. pick up. <laughs> and, but it was something. Everybody didn't want that buzzer to go off. But it was and instructionally, it was great for some of the, the young Latin kids that would come over and be playing completely out of control as a way to slow them down. I was in Sarasota for the debut of that water polo clock. And I remember one of the big questions of the day was, where would you even buy a water polo clock? <laughs> well, if, if you go to the Olympic training uh, site, you, you got to understand. Because that's where I go all the time. <laughs> when, I would go in, when I would go in there and go, hey, Chris, uh, hey, I've been thinking. He would go, oh, my God, where am I going to find this flag of, of, of Trinidad? Where am I going to find a water polo clock? <laughs> But it was uh, it was worth it, and you know what? We're in the entertainment business. Not even not just on the field, but out on the practice field and in the clubhouse. You know, okay, we're going to go do a drill that people have done a million times. Pitchers are covering first base. Well, how can we make this less? You know, you got about ten to twelve minutes. If you're doing a drill more than that, and players, if I look, I told pitching coaches when we had pitchers and catchers only. If I look over on one of the fields and you're sitting there talking. Guys, they want action. You break the, the you break them down into four great groups of say seven, and you cover first. You know we've already gone over inside how we're going to do it. So what are you talking about? You know, just players don't want to hear you pontificate about how smart you are. Let's have some action on the field and do the drill. So how do we do covering first differently? Well, we put a clock over there. Now there's there's this great clamor, you know. Of I I, I had a coach. My son, my uh, one year at ESPN was my senior his senior year in high school. And the coach came up and he said, Buck, you know, would you uh, help me? Someone said, no, you need to be the head coach. I'm the groundskeeper. I'll cut the grass and, and drag the field and paint the foul poles. I loved it. And finally, one day he said, we just can't get kids to come out for baseball. I said, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your practice one day. and I'm going to show you why I'm having trouble. It's not their fault. It's our fault. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I just watched a kid stand out in left field for an hour during batting practice, picking his rear. Okay? So – would you want to play that? I said, look over on the football field, the lacrosse field, the basketball court. They're, they're playing. There's action. He goes, well, how do I solve it? I go, watch. Next day, they come strolling out there, all 15 of them. They're going out and stretch. I said, all right, stop. You're 15 years old. You woke up, stretch. Your, your, your body's loose. Throw, that's out. This is about playing the game. Everybody get loose, throw a few balls. I said, today, we're going to play a game. What position do you want to play, John? Well, I've always wanted to be a shortstop. I said, you're the shortstop. What about you? I've always wanted to be a catcher. All right, get the gear on. And we're going to – I'm throwing from halfway down. It's an 0-2 count on everybody. And we're going to put the ball in play. We're going to run the bases. We're going to catch the baseball. And we're going to play the game instead of watch the game. I tell you, after about 20, 30 minutes, we played push-up. After three outs, everybody would push up to a different position. And after about half an hour, Jason, these guys were like they're in a, a, a kids league game. They were yelling, laughing. They were having the time of their life. I looked over at coach and said, see, that is, the game's great. How we're coaching it is the problem. And we got so much struct, we got so much structure 
that we're not playing the game. And I'm, sometimes I, I worry about that in our big league game today. Hey everybody, Evil Mayor Tim here with a message from Hawthorne. Smelling good never goes out of style, and the people at Hawthorne are making it easy. Check out their website and complete the quiz designed to get you just the right cologne for you. It takes about two minutes, and Hawthorne will tell you the two colognes that are best for you, one for work and one for play. And there's more than just cologne. Get deodorant, shampoo, body wash, and more delivered right to your door, totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. Check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co and use the promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use the promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Yeah, I got to ask you about another great buck shoulder innovation that I saw you try that would apply today. You've got teams considering whether to pump in that fake crowd noise. I saw you do this in Sarasota. I was a fan. Sarasota police, not that big a fan. So, so what happened there, Buck? <laughs> well, you know, okay, we're, we're trying to go, okay, this is practical and it's also a little bit of entertainment. So, you know, there's so many drills you do in spring training that go great, but they're not a realistic depiction of what happens in the big league. Pop class calls and priorities. I got it. You take it. Everything's hunky-dory. And then the season starts. Doug, you're in, you're in center field in a full house, and you and the right fielder are descending on each other, the second baseman. You can't hear. You can't hear. It's not realistic. And you're in the seventh game of the World Series in front of 60,000 people at Yankee Stadium. You can't hear. <laughs> so how, how, do we, how do we defend it? So, you know, it took me a while to get our video coordinator to understand that I wanted, as the ball left the bat, I wanted you to start turning the dial up. So when it's at its apex and coming down, it's at full volume. And fortunately, we had the sound from the 2014 playoffs, which is one of the loudest camera <laughs> yards has ever had. And I'm going to tell you, if you didn't use the right fundamentals or pop-up priorities and how you went about it, you would have some collisions, you would have some issues. But guys figured out that this is realistic what we're doing. Now, I guess it set off a few alarms in the neighborhood. <laughs> and we, we had a 10-minute window we knew before the police arrived. <laughs> so we had, to, we had to do it quickly. You were talking about just trying to manufacture <laughs> energy with no fans. Again, you've got teams thinking about whether or not they want to pump in fake crowd noise. Would you do that if you were in charge of a team this year? Uh, that's a great question. I haven't thought about it. Um, probably not. I, I, I don't like the fake stuff, so to speak. I mean, uh, uh, my, my, my first thought would be no. Right. I mean, they're, you know, they're, one of the reasons that, that teams are starting to do it is Everybody can hear every conversation yeah, right. on Drown the field. Stuff out, you know, that, that's and a good point. That's a great point, Jax. <laughs> right? Like you don't necessarily want that, do you? Popcorn. Oh, well, no popcorn. you know, <laughs> you know, you know what? You know, people ask me about that game with nobody there. One of the issues, I don't know if it's good or bad, but you could hear everything and anything anybody said. You umpires. You know, there's Doug. You know, there's, there's these little I call them sweet nothings that come out of the dugout that don't mean <laughs> right. But, but but some guy, some some umpire will call a pitch that you thought was a ball, and you, oh yeah, uh, you don't really say anything. Right. But he knows he's getting a reaction on that pitch, and you couldn't say anything. And you know, we've made our game so sterile with arguments and replays, and and I got it. But I don't know how 
Um, it's really going to cramp your style, but I think what they're going to find, because I think our game and uh, with the nobody in the ballpark game was about two hours and nine minutes, what they're going to find. And I told the, you know, on the competition committee, I voiced this, you know, we talk about all these things to speed up the game. You know, our guy, you know, that game guys got in the box and hit and pitchers got on the mound and threw the ball. And nobody had a look at me mentality. Wait a minute. I just got a hit. Now what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to look in the dugout and pump my chest. I'm supposed to, you know, uh, do this gyration or something. And God bless them. Everybody, that's fine. But, you know, there was none of that. We took, it was a pure game. It was a pure form of the game. And I remember after it was over, I said, wow, we found out, you know, believe me, if they said, okay, if you don't throw the ball in 20 seconds, it's a ball. And if you don't get in the box like you're supposed to, it's a strike. Watch how quick they adjust to that. Watch how quick they adjust to that. Because I was on a flight, I don't know, a few years back, going east coast, west coast, and they have these TV screens, and they were playing a game from 78. And Roger McDowell, my pitching coach, he said, have you watched this? I said, yeah. He said, what do you notice? I said, how fast they play the game. Yeah. They play the game fast. And sometimes I w- wonder if there's less ability needed to play in the big leagues nowadays. Nowadays, you know, Doug, you had to bunt. You had to hit and run. You had to steal. You had to defend. You had to run the bases properly. Yeah. But now they're chasing velocity and chasing power and the actual skill level and you're going to see it. these teams that can execute in the 10th inning, uh, a smaller part of the game are going to be ahead of the curve. And if I said to these teams, Hey, you can win four games for sure. Every expanding game, because you execute this properly. I know that's what I would be working on is your bunt defense. Good. Because bunt defense is going to be huge. Yeah. Well, Buck, I mean, it's, um, there's an opportunity here for baseball and uh, maybe some of it is forward-looking and how they want to innovate, but some of it may be bringing back something in the past that they said, you know, I wish we didn't lose that. Is there any innovations you'd like to see or in this opportunity with this short schedule, given that they're going to experiment quite a bit? Uh, I like the fact that they're going to have uh, both – all teams are using the DH or not using. I don't care if they have or don't have. I mean, I do have some personal feelings. I don't think John and Mary get their family together to go out to watch Randy Johnson hit. You know, it's just not a draw uh, to watch a pitcher hit. And it's it's harder to manage in the American League than it is the National League because there are not, you know, there's not outs in the lineup that you can work your way through. It's harder to have a big inning in the National League. But there's no lead safe in the American League. I mean, there's a constant power throughout lineups. But I would – I would uh, I like the fact that the DH is going to be used. I, you know, I hope that's a, uh, and I'm hoping that they don't stay with five rounds in the draft. I think that's really going to hurt our game if they do that. Um, but I don't know. What yeah, do you I guys? Mean, what would I mean, you like well, to see? Yeah, Buck, I mean, unpack that a little bit because there's often debate about National League American National League being more strategic. There was an article listing uh, recently about all the. Uh, uh, different National League managers or you know, managers from different leagues combining to talk about NL rules. So you have the pitcher hitting. So now you think about double switching. And uh, so what what's the myth behind the National League style uh, being more uh, strategy? Well, first, yeah. Doug, there's more decisions made for you uh, in the National League than are in the American League. The American League, it's, it's a pure uh, evaluating matchups pure your your guys abilities and what's what's the best situation to put them in uh, as opposed to the picture that they have and your not your knowledge of, of their team and what have you 
there's there's a purity there. Where in the National League, let, let's face it, it's not brain surgery. The bases are loaded, and your pitcher's turned to hit, and it's the seventh inning. You're down by two runs. <laughs> Let me think. Mm, I'm going to pinch hit. <laughs> you know, and, and 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 I think not over managing in the National League. You know, uh, there was a manager years ago. I won't name his name, but he was a counteract guy. In other words, he would anything you did throughout the game. Uh, if you brought in a left-hand pitcher in the sixth inning, he was going to pinch it the right hand. That's fine and dandy. But come, if you could stay close to him to the eighth inning, he was out of players. He was out of moves. And you all, he always had trouble late in the game matching up. And sometimes the best move you make is the move you don't make. And you don't always have to do something. But, you know, they're both challenging. But I found the American League a lot tougher to manage in than the National League. I mean, I can tell you, if I were in charge, I'd have gone pitch clock. That that would have been the experiment that I would have liked to I like have it. seen. I, you, I like hey, it. I like it. But you got you got to penalize it. You got to penalize it, Jason. Yes. Listen, everybody's big boys. Sooner or later, they're going to adjust. If you don't get in the box, I've seen guys spend ten seconds on deck waiting for their music to be played. Okay. <laughs> I go, come on, you know, it, it'd be like me. I, I'm going to go argue with an umpire, but. I got to wait till my songs play before I come out. I'm trying to figure out what, what would my song be? You know, it's scream up music. The entertainment package. I want that. You know, you know, I mean, can you rattle off four players and their and their walk up music? I can't. They change it about every other game. I don't think John and Mary are bringing a family of four to the game to listen to Joe Blow's uh, walk up music. You know, where's the entertainment factor? And I'm not one of those guys back when. There's some great new things that have been brought in our game, but. You know, the purity of the game and the speed in which it's played and the sense of urgency is, is important. Well, you know, here's a question for you. Um, sense of urgency. Like, I, I, I know that you're, you, you love the journey of the season. In 60 games, there's not going to be a journey. It's like in a sell trip, no. right? No. So how, yeah. how does yeah. that alter the way the game should be managed? Well, that's different. It, it's going to be a whole, yes, this is uncharted territory. And you know, it's like, an, you know, uh, it's like a half season club up in the New York Penn League. And you can't afford to go, you know, everybody's in play. If they start the season, every team's in play. You know, the Baltimore Orioles, the Detroit Tigers, you know, it's, it's challenging. It looks like their seasons might be on paper. You know, every team that lost 90 to 100 games had a month or a two week span where they went, wow, we may be better than we thought we did. World. We may be ahead of, you know, our learning curve here, and we're going to get it going. Then all of a sudden, you, you make a few trades, and and the trading deadline, and you're right there. Everybody's in play, and I think that sense of urgency. You can't go through a two week spell where you're bad, and oh, well, we'll get them tomorrow. Well, 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 you know. And as a manager, you're used to not showing that panic when you go through a down period, and you know you got a good club. It's part of it, and. I watched these inter-squad games, and I said on the air the other night, I said, I don't care how many inter-squad games you play, how many practice games, there is a different uh, intensity level and a different sense of urgency when the other team is a, a team that you're competing against. And, you know, these guys can go out and throw five or six innings and throw 60, 70 pitches. Uh, I think that's a lure for, for some uh, injury down the road because when the season starts, there is a different – Level, Doug. You remember how you used to spend all this time in the off season? Just oh, I'm in the best shape of my life. I've done all these things. I pushed push myself. <laughs> right. And then the first time you run the bases, and the first time you got spikes on, and you're running around, you feel like you haven't done a thing. 
You're exhausted. You're going, are you kidding uh, me? It's a different shape. Oh, yeah. Game shape's a different totally. shape. Yeah, it's totally different. And and uh, it's the tempo. It's the reaction time. It's mm-hmm. the instinct, something taking over the training even. And uh, I, yeah, I just remember a lot of our, remember we had the Ranger run and all the ab work we did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, our camps, your camp was no joke. I mean, it was the toughest spring training I had, but it was, I came out of that, uh, you know, feeling like I had covered a lot of ground. We Remember we'd go to the pool, we'd have the swimming pool section. So he had us in these rotations. It was like a cycle. And and uh, yeah, I mean, and sliding into first base, that was your pet peeve. It's like, why don't people slide in the first base? And you'd, you'd actually <laughs> well, go out there. You know, there's, there's, five, <laughs> there's, there's five to 10 outs a year that you can get in your favor if you read the first baseman on a routine ball. Doug, how many times during a season do you see a fairly routine ball to a shortstop and he throws the ball a little bit up a line, the first baseman decides he's got to come off the bag and easily tag the runner. Nobody's involved in collisions anymore. But if you are running down the line and you're reading the first baseman and you see him coming off the bag and you slide to the first base coach's side, you're going to be safe about 90% of the time. And it just requires a lot of discipline. And if I said to you that we could get five to 10 outs in a year, uh, would you take it? Oh yeah, we need to work on that. But guys, you know, I didn't want sliding late right on top of the bag. That's injury waiting to happen. But that routine ball where guys just stop and let the first baseman tag you, if you, Baseball is a game of anticipation, anticipating something that might happen. You know, if the ball's put in play, battered or thrown, everybody on the field has a place to be. You know, I used to talk about anticipating angles of throws where you can be there if the ball's overthrown. Doug, I can't tell you, I mean, you grasped it quickly because you were always interested in bringing something that everybody else didn't bring. You know, Jason, how many times do you see a stolen base at second, the ball bounds in the center field, the guy gets up and trots to third? And then you see a ball go in the center field. He gets up, takes two steps, and the center fielder's got the ball. You know, Bernie Williams used to talk about these god-awful habits I developed, you know, from my rookie year and down instructional league. I couldn't break them. You know, Bernie knew that if that ball was over, as soon as the ball crossed the hitter and he knew the guy was running at first, he's sprinting to second base. So if that ball goes through, that runner doesn't get up and go to third. But how many times this year, watch the games, how many times the ball goes by the second baseman and the guy gets up and trots the third. That's a center fielder not anticipating something that might happen. That's great. Yeah. Or, or, or you see a guy who gets the base hit and the guy scores from second, and then he just runs into an out going into second base. Yeah. Uh, you know, just giving up you know, oh, that when, when there's crazy. no play. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was something. <laughs> oh, that drove me crazy. Everybody would pat him on the back and drove in a run. Oh, I wouldn't pat him on the back. And I'd be waiting on the first base coach. We just gave away one of these precious 27 outs. I'll tell you a great Gerald Williams story. Gerald Williams was played 10 years in the big leagues. When I first got him in Oneana, this kid, uh, solid, smart, uh, very quiet, unassuming, kid from Grambling who was like 29th round. He had great skills. I remember writing in a report when I was 28 years old that he couldn't hit a curveball. He didn't know how to take a lead. He didn't do it. I got a call on that watch line the next day from our farm director. I got nothing but I picked up the phone. He said, what in the blankety blank are you there for? I said, excuse me? He said, yeah. He said, 29th round. He said, let me ask you a question. Can he throw? I said, oh, gee, he's got an eight arm. He can throw. Can he run? I said, he's an eight runner, top of the charts. 29th round, Buck. We had some confidence to draft a flawed player that you might be able to teach him how to hit a curveball. You might teach him how to take a lead. You might. He said, but maybe I got the wrong guy. 
I got off the phone, walked in the clubhouse, said, Gerald, come on, we're going out to work on a few things. Gerald had a split grip. There's no kidding. He got there, he had a split grip. But anyway, so we talked, you know, you've got this piece of clay that you can mold at that age because, you know, their learning curve's so quick and they're so open to things. So I said, Gerald, anytime there's a – he was playing left field one day in Yankee Stadium and we did this noni on There's a ball hitting right center field or down the right field line. You're supposed to back up third. But the pitcher may have to go to the plate, and then there's an overthrow at third. You got to be there. Well, Gerald and I used to tell him, "Hey, do something in the first inning. Let's win the first inning. Something that shows your teammates and the other team that by God, I don't know what's going to happen, but we're here ready to play." So, ball hitting right center field. Gerald used to love it because it was something that would separate him. You know, good major league players crave the discipline it takes to do something that separates you from the average Joe. Gerald would run to the third base dugout, which was a visiting team to back up. But as he would get there, there was a kind of a gravelly warning track there. He would kick up a bunch of gravel and dirt into the visiting dugout <laughs> to make sure that, that he had announced his presence and, I, and I'm over here. And everybody, everybody would look down and say, who is that? God, that's the left fielder over here backing up. <laughs> I, I, I love that. When Gerald told me that story, I said, Gerald, that is beautiful. And he ended up playing, what, 10 years in the big league? Yeah, he was he had a long career. Tampa, he played around, and he was tough. He was tough out. You know, he could you play know, you anywhere. Just, and he could. Yeah, you, I mean, you just, look, you just spelled out the value of an out, the value of a base, the value of a run. I want to ask you about the value of a win in a season like this. I, I was looking at the fan graphs projections for this season the other day. Puck, they've got 16 teams projected to win between 30 and 33 games. So think about the value of one win, that one game that yep. gets away. Yep. Like, I don't know if you ever had games where you thought, I, I've got to let this game go so I don't sacrifice oh, yeah. the next two. I don't know if yeah. – could you think that way this year if you're a manager? I don't – you know, that's a good question, Jake. Because, you know, when you're managing a long season – it's not so much you let it go, but you may not put your best foot forward. You may not pitch that relief pitcher the third day in a row. You may exactly. do something a little different in the extra innings, but you're living for the long haul. And uh, that's the thing that kills you in extra innings because it, it messes up your bullpen. In today's game, your bullpen has to have at least three guys in it that you can send down. You know, you've got to have options. You know, when you're on a small market club and you have a bullpen, that it's unoptionable if you got a problem. And trying to explain that to some general managers, you know, it gets you in trouble. But, you know, you've got to have that ability. So now that now, because of the big rosters, you almost got too many toys, you know, but that can change very quickly in a week's time because now all of a sudden this guy's sick, this guy's injured, this guy's that, and all of a sudden you're playing with Joe and Frank Snow from uh, Oneana, you know, and you got to be careful about – that so the people that can keep their people healthy so there's many times where, where you in a long season may not put your best foot forward so that you can uh, maintain a consistent level of competition over the long haul and that's what you know there's four times you manage in regular season and in, in regular baseball you manage differently in spring training you manage differently in the regular season you manage differently in this god-awful thing called september call-up baseball and you manage differently in the playoffs. And it took me a long time to grasp how different all those are. I wouldn't say a long time, but I, I, I finally figured out that when you got in the playoffs, it was a, there was a sense of urgency. And even sometimes I got caught up in that. You know, you don't live for another day. And I think these 60 games, you're going to see guys you know, 
throw a little more caution about tomorrow. I mean, throw caution out, out the wind on worrying about tomorrow because every game is so precious. Yeah, I've heard people say that every game is going to be like a playoff game. I don't think that's exactly right. But what what is it? Uh, these games really do matter in a way that one out of 162 doesn't quite matter. Well, the last thing you want to do is walking through the clubhouse going, gosh, guys, we got to win today. Oh, we lost today. The world's ended and we've got to, oh, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't help true talented teams. I, I still think when we're, we're all aware of what's coming and, you know, it's not like the Red Sox are playing 80 and the Yankees are playing 60. You know, and the Yankees and the whole world doesn't revolve around those two teams. There's 28 other teams, even though sometimes uh, some people might feel differently about it. But, you know, I, I think the, the, the guy that can relay the sense of urgency without a sense of panic, you know, you know, it, like the last thing I, I call it the no SHI. You know, you never want to say something as a manager that a player goes, no kidding, Buck. You think I don't know that? No kidding. You know, I've heard that before. You, you think I don't know we're playing 60 games and games are more, you know, or there's a more sense of finality about it and we're closer to the end of the season? You want to be careful, you know, especially with veteran players, of, of saying something that they go, he doesn't know that I know that, really? He must think I'm a real dummy. And, and Buck, I mean, you, um, I, I just was always impressed just as we talked about with your 2003, our 2003 team of bringing people together. And you did you did mention earlier about playing in empty stands in Baltimore, uh, and and obviously you mentioned the social unrest. We've also been very courageous and brave to just be able to speak on issues that divide us. So I guess my question is, what you know, given what we're facing, not only in a pandemic but our nation trying to figure out what's next and coming together, uh, what would be that speech that you'd give the players about how to you know you know how to unite? despite all of our differences and the fact that we're coming from so many different places? Well, I've always tried to think, Doug, that sports and athletics, because it's so competitive, was a great equalizer of men and women. Because I, I, I just, uh, maybe there's something different going on out there, but every meeting I've ever been, and I guess because they knew I didn't want to hear anything contrary, was about who gives us the best chance to win? Who's going to be the best teammate? Who's going to be, who's the most talented player? Who's going to, you know, be a uh, fit into a clubhouse structure of, of who we are and what we're trying to be. Okay. It never came in. Well, you know, the tiebreaker is always this. We, we never had to go to a tiebreaker because it was purely, you know, a pure evaluation of a human being's skills, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally and socially. So, you know, that's why I was always so drawn to athletics. I was fortunate to have an upbringing with my mom and dad and we're at the mercies of the mothers and fathers of the world because, you know, I know sitting down at my supper table and I was supposed to be there at six o'clock every night or other, I didn't eat, you know, there were things that, you know, okay, what happened with your day, uh, Matt, my sisters, and we were all allowed to talk, but my parents would listen to the conversation and any type of hint of anything that uh, was unjust or was not right. My parents stopped it. Now, there's a lot of people, one, don't have two parents in the household, and two, they don't have people willing to say no. And believe me, back then, it was kind of out of the ordinary the way my parents did it. And I think what really hit me, Doug, and I'll tell you this story. I, 
every Sunday, my, I was in a little bitty town, Northwest Florida, and my dad was scared to death that I wasn't going to face the competition. We were the smallest 1A public high school in the state of Florida, and everybody hit 500. I mean, come on. Well, on Sundays after church, he would put me in the truck, and we would go over to an all-black league. And these guys were 25 to 40. First time I ever saw a left-hander with a good move to first. First time I saw a real change-up. First time, I never, I don't ever forget this guy had a screwball. First time I saw the game played at a speed that I had never seen. And I remember riding back in the truck with my dad and he going, what'd you learn today? I said, dad, there's a different game out there. There's another level. He said, exactly. My dad's got one picture on his wall. He, one guy he ever wanted to meet was Cool Papa Bell. He thought he was, he told me Cool Papa Bell stories forever. And when I got to see him, I thought I'd just see God. But, you know, my advice is don't so smugly think that you know what someone's, you know, you, you haven't walked a mile in somebody's shoes. You haven't walked. I think that's what frustrates a lot of managers when you're dealing with a lot of people that haven't been in a dugout and had to make that tough decision in eight in and in 10 seconds and, and know, you know, be careful of telling truths that hurt innocent people. There's a lot of things you have to wear when you go in the clubhouse after game and talk to the media. And instead of fighting it, look at it as a conduit to try to communicate with your team and the fans about, you know, who we are and the message we're trying to deliver and who we're trying to be. Don't fight it. You know, Jason may ask me a question, but I may, I'm going to use it as an avenue to get something across, whether it be about the plight in Baltimore and, and the things that are going on in our, in our world. But, you know, the, the message I had was that, you know, you, you have never been black. So don't sit there and try to think what they should be feeling. Oh, that's awful. The response to that. Wait a minute. Do you know what drove that? Do you really know? No, you don't. So shut up. You really don't know. So try to listening instead of talking about it. Don't get me going. <laughs> well, you, well, you know, Buck, you were always so conscious of all these little aspects involved in bringing a team together. And, and one of them was always how meticulous you were about the way you set up your clubhouse. And I want to ask you about that dynamic this year, but like the whole aspect of whose locker was next to whose, was that ever well, an accident in a Buck Showalter clubhouse? Well, it had to, it had to be communication though. Hey, Doug, I, you know, I got Doug coming in off the charts, makeup, <laughs> off the charts, background, off the charts, social skills. And in great work habits and okay i got some guy that might be teetering on the edge especially a young player or something that has great ability and the game comes so easy to him but you somehow kind of slide him in next to doug okay and believe me if doug said i i want to be over here by myself i'm a nine-year veteran i want to have this lot you know you know you let the veterans pick out their lockers and then you talk to them about who you'd like to surround them with adam jones is great you know i'd always pick a guy that, that kind of was like Adam was his rookie year and studying beside Adam. And Adam was great talking to these guys. Nick Marcakis. I mean, that was something we really moved hard on in Baltimore was to get a, people that, uh, you know, kind of played the game the right way and treated people the right way. And that's who we were. And I said, how are we going to make up the ground between us and the Red Sox and the Yankees? In Toronto, it wasn't going to be necessarily out uh, spending them or out ability, but let's be willing to do some things that they may not be willing to do uh, in playing the game. 
but you know that you know things get blown out of proportion. You know, some guy wanted his locker, he could have it. We put the pitchers and the catchers together. We made sure the lockers were made bigger for the catchers because they had more equipment. Um, there wasn't a. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't believe in any form or fashion in any type of rookie hazing. I think that's ridiculous. Where, now wait a minute. I was. This was done to me when I was a rookie. So by God, I'm going to do it to them when they're a rookie. Well, that's crazy. They're wearing, wearing the same uniform. You're trying to make their path easier instead of harder. You remember how that was when you got hazed or bullied as a young kid? Instead of doing it to somebody else because it was done to you, how about not doing it because you knew it was wrong? And uh, same way with coaches. And the same way with the analytical people. I used to love to bring the sabermetric people into all our meetings and make them feel a part of it. Bring what you bring. Don't chastise them or make them feel uncomfortable. It's up to the manager and the coaches to make everybody feel comfortable in the clubhouse. And it's very important that the, in a game that's played so often, because, you know, I pick their friends for them. And then when the season's over, I tell them, you guys can go pick your own friends now. <laughs> right. And see, your places, your, your clubhouses, they were always places for your teams to bond. And now here well, we are. We have situations like the Red Sox, for example. Right? These guys don't even use their clubhouse. They have suites. Two players assigned to each suite to go get dressed in the suite. So well, that's an advantage, Jason. That's, that's an advantage that the teams that have been with each other before, not purely veteran, but they've been around each other for a season. These teams that are being put together on the move, they're going to be like a, a, a ship without an ocean, so to speak. I, I think the teams that have already had that bond, you know, Doug, you remember one of the first things, you know, it's about a presentation as a manager. You, you, you know, you've heard your, somebody say you only get one chance to make a first impression. I, I'm big about presentation. You know, like the first thing we would do, you know, Doug, you remember how the first day of spring training meetings, everybody would be in a locker and now the trainer would talk and then the hitting coach would talk and this guy, and after about 15 or 20 minutes there, you're like, God, just get me out of here. And, and yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, it's awful. So I'm saying, okay, I want the only thing to challenge them is when they come through the door that day that they're ready to work. And we weren't out there three or four hours. We were out there two, two and a half tops and guys were moving. There was something productive. There was an entertainment value. But I took the whole team the night before. I said, hey, we're going to have a meeting at 6 o'clock. And when they get to the ballpark, there'd be two buses there. And we'd get on the buses and we'd go to a theater or someplace with a big screen. And you want to see the time we took putting together this presentation. It's kind of a movie. It's about 20 minutes long. I don't know if you remember it, Doug. And there was a certain, you know, I delivered our message. But I want to get all this out of the way. And everybody understood what was expected, what we were going to do. I, I think it was important that when they left there, they knew what was expected. Every team's different. You know, I've kept these uh, movies that we put together every year through the years, and each message was a little different. Every team was different. Every stage of an organization's development was different. But I didn't want that morning. I, I just want guys to understand, when you come through those doors, you know, you're going to be laughing and having fun, whatever. But when we go on the field, you know, there's nothing. I'm going to eliminate as many of the challenges that you face. And the only thing, that are you good enough to help us, and can you get yourself ready to play? And this is what's expected, and here's what your role is going to be. And and that role may change, you know, but I, I just, I, I felt like the presentation that you make the first three or four days is paramount. You know, they understand it. And guys, you know, and your veteran players have to be leading it. I remember we, we had a guy, Seth Smith, came into camp and, you know, one of the things we did the very first day, we took infield. And they'd all look around and go, 
what, what are we doing? And Seth goes, Adam, what are we doing? He says, we're taking infield. He said, the first day? He goes, oh, yeah. He said, this is how we do it here. You're supposed to be ready. He goes, the first day? Said, yeah. We did, and we didn't do it after two days. But there was a message to be delivered there, you know, that, hey, we're in. We started. The clock started. You know, the, the you know everybody else first day is today. Can we do something today? But it was part of a team building thing. There's not, you know, infill is about a team. You know, you throw it, you hit it, you cut off man, whatever. You hold each other to a high standard. So, um, you know, Adam, but there was no sympathetic ear there. One of the best players on my team said, yeah, that's how we do it here. And it's really worked out well. I hope you threw some back in, uh, you know, Madison, Mississippi, because guys are ready to throw here today because they know what's coming. Yeah, see, I want you to think about team building this year. I'm just fascinated by the difficulty in trying to bring a team together and, but at the same time, you've got these rules that are trying to keep them distanced. Well, I, I yeah. you can get around. I, there's a way to do it. You, you get a room big enough. I know we built a complex in Sarasota. I noticed that the uh, travel secretary's office was huge. And I said, Kev, what do you need this for? Basically, you're giving out meal money. He goes, yeah, it is kind of big. So I cut it down to about a fourth of size and took that area so that we could get all of our players in one room. Now, there's some way to do it where people can have the, the social distancing that you have. That's what I'd be looking for. I'd look for a place because the thought of going through a spring train and not being able to get the club together as a group is uh, is going to make it real tough. Yeah, and I, I, and I could speak to – I just remember I tore my hamstring tendon in 03 in Texas early in the season. And uh, I went on, eventually went on a rehab assignment after like three and a half weeks of working after minor surgery. And Buck was checking in. Certainly the staff was checking in. I was like in Frisco, Texas, double A, and always making sure, are you doing the work? You know, making sure you're getting on it. I remember, and I think the scout, wasn't it? Was it, I don't know if it was Mel. It's Mel Didier. Mel Didier. Is that right? Oh, Is it yeah. Mel? Or? Yeah. 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 He, he, Mel came in one time, middle of nowhere, and is like, you know, I got to get on you now, making sure you're doing your work down here. <laughs> so it's like he, he he like dropped out of the skies with like a sun cap and some shades. I, I, I got to tell you a funny story. Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you too. I, we, I had Ron Gidry on rehab when I was managing Fort Lauderdale, and we were playing in Dunedin. And I looked down the right field corner, and Mr. Steinberg's down there in sunglasses and a trench coat. <laughs> watching watching Gidry and I'm, I remember Monk Meyer pitching coach walked by and said hi Mr. Stumber how do you know who I am I tell you another one I, we played a day game in Camden Yard and I had just gotten there it was in middle of August and a guy named Jim Johnson who ended up being our closer was on rehab down in uh, Bowie about 45 minutes away from Camden Yards and we get through with the day game and you know, I had heard a lot of good things about Jimmy, and I just – I got in the car and drove to Bowie. Now, Jim was going to throw, I think, the eighth inning, and I walked through the, the uh, gates down the right field corner in, in full uniform and just walked through the bullpen, and Jim's sitting there, <laughs> and, he, and he looks up. He said, you know – and one of the guys said, didn't you guys just get through playing a game an hour ago? I said, yeah, what else am I going to do? I'm here to watch some big, tall right hander. They say can sink it pretty good. Throw. <laughs> Jimmy talks about that. But I, I got to tell you, Jim had to, Jim had to throw two change-ups and outings, and one of me through that day went about 500 feet. And I remember, I remember him walking by me and said, I'm not going to throw that pitch in the game. <laughs> 
I am not going to throw <laughs> But, you know, that's a question that you try to make on people, you know, that, that it matters what, what's going on in Bowie and Norfolk and Frederick and Delmarva, that it's important to you. And I call them my guilt phone calls every day driving back and forth to the ballpark. You know, you might see that somebody in Bowie's lost seven games in a row. You call that manager, you know, shoot the stuff with him. Just let him know you're feeling his pain. And understand what that's that's how you get an organization that feels like they're operating as one and what they're what jobs they're doing are important. All right, look, we can't let you leave here, Buck, without you telling us your very best story about what it was like to manage the pride of the University of Pennsylvania, Doug Glanville. <laughs> well, you know, I, I gotta tell you guys. <laughs> Doug, you know, we got Doug at a stage in his career where he wasn't completely Doug. Okay, and he, he went on to, you know, play some more. But when I made my calls, you know, we had this thing years ago called watch lines that uh, you just paid a flat fee and you could call anywhere in the country. And the people that I talked to about Doug, from guidance counselors to professors at Penn University to college coaches to minor league coaches, they all had the same thing. You know, they talked about him as a human being, as a teammate, you know, all the other stuff. You know, and that's, I call it the sixth tool. And that's without the boots on the ground scouts, that that's why so many mistakes are being made on players makeup today. Cause guys don't want to go that, 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 you know, that extra step. I tell my son who's scouting, I said, son, how do you evaluate a player if you get rained out? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you should have seven or eight things you're able to get. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you get there, find out where his car is parked and see what kind of car he's driving. Find out where his mom and dad are sitting and sit right behind them and listen to the conversations that they're having. Uh, watch him interact with his teammates in between innings. Watch uh, uh, how he, you know, prepares himself. Uh, you know, does he have a broad back? Does he have a high butt? Does he have a stiff wrist? Does he have long fingers? <laughs> I, went, I went through all these things. Uh, does he have a full beard? And he goes, a full beard? I said, yeah, if a guy's got a full beard at 18 years old, you better like the body you see because it ain't changing a whole lot. <laughs> and I think if they're baby face with no facial hair, there's room for them to grow. But getting back to Doug, he was a guy that you could trust. Doug brought it every day. He, he was sharp but didn't have to show you how smart he was. You know, it was just the way he played the game. And at that stage in his career, he was still interested in getting better. And he could do a lot of things. And uh, you could see why people thought so much of him. You know, the building thing and the statistics, they speak for themselves. That's, that's the easy part. But when you're putting together something that you have to do a little differently because of some of the financial restraints, you don't want to make mistakes on the other part of it. And Doug was a big part, you know, very quickly, you know, three days into camp, I went, yeah, there it is, there it is, there it is. He was one of those guys that, you know, if you're, you really want to see about somebody, watch what they do away from the ball. And, you know, the around the cage, uh, running the bases, little things that they really don't have to do. Was there, there was a great pride in his work. You know, he took pride in doing things right. And he wanted to fit in, but he also had an individualism to him that you don't want to take away. The biggest mistake you make is taking away a guy's personality or his individualism, you know. I mean, the, the Latin players especially, they have a certain uh, uh, individualism to their game that you've got to give them that, that freedom. Uh, they have great imagination. Doug had great imagination. You know, if I said something to him, hey, what do you th- ever think about bunting with a bat between your legs? He goes, no, but tell me what, you think, tell me what you're thinking about instead of saying you're nuts. 
you know, he was always he was always reaching for another level. And he all last thing I'll say is Doug always had a competitive button. When all things were equal, if it was snowing or it was raining or it, sooner or later his competitive button would kick in. He wouldn't go, oh well, this is just one of those days. And Doug could be 0 for 4 and get a big hit in his last at bat. I mean, he never gave in to mediocrity. His competitive button always got pushed. Pretty good, huh? Yeah, no, I appreciate that, yeah. Buck. And, and you know, uh, that was – and that year was the first time I, I got hurt to that level and, and I, I had to miss the game. You know, that was, a, that was a trial and tribulation for me I'd never experienced where I was out and I had to have surgery and, and it took uh, about two months ultimately – rehab assignment, go back to AAA, A-ball. You know, remember Chan Ho Park was with me for part of that. Many stories there. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, just that, the, the discipline of getting back on the field. And then once I was back, having a, a new appreciation because it was – it literally took more time to prepare for the game than it did to play it at that point because of, you know, the whirlpool and the ice and the stem and the – and uh, so that was a, a, a moment in my career where I was like, I, you know, you have to really love it. Well, you have to want it. That's a great point, Doug, because what happens, you know, we eliminate so many things nowadays that really make a guy understand whether he really loves it and really wants to do it. I mean, I worry about guys not going through extended spring and instructional league and A-ball and double-A because there's many times. I mean, I went to extended spring twice. I've been to 10 instructional leagues, and that's where yeah. you find out how much you really like, you know, the the biggest thing you miss as a major league manager is coaching the game. You know, that's why I love spring training so much because you got to coach the game and help guys improve and, and also learn from them. You know, every, every spring I would pick something up from a player and I go, wow, that's pretty good. I haven't ever heard that before. You know, we're going to put that into play. I love that. And that's what, you know, I was talking to Leland the other day. He said, you know, we were using stats and sabermet, all stuff, you know, but we will ask you to defend it. You know, why should I use this? Tell me, you know, we're going to question you on it. Help me understand it. I used to take my most veteran guy every spring and have him go upstairs to our analytical department. And I said, I want you to take the cloak and dagger off everything. He goes, what do you mean? I, I said, I'm going to get everybody in here. And we're going to talk about OBP. We're going to talk about zone ratings. We're going to talk about uh, smash factor. We're going to talk about everything, but I want you to talk about it. You know, and we get all the boots on the ground guys in a room and they'd go, wait a minute, that's all it is? I go, yeah. I said, Dominic, I want you to tell them what it says, what it's trying to tell us. And then I want you to tell them what it doesn't tell you, where, where the loopholes are and where you can get in trouble if you completely evaluate a player only on this. And I don't think Doug players really feel comfortable when they know the good players don't, that you're completely evaluating them purely analytically. They want to know that that six tools part of the evaluation, and that's what scares me because we don't have many as many people as we once had in the game that knew how to evaluate that. I know Doug, one thing: if I spent time around your mom and dad, I knew right away that that uh, Dougie had had a great upbringing. <laughs> you know, he had respect for authority, but he wasn't somebody that would bend over when something was wrong. You know, he had a backbone. Yeah, okay, I appreciate your opinion on that, but have you ever thought about this? I love that give and take with him. You know, there's a game we play here that Doug likes to play, I should say. It's kind of like, remember that time? And I, I think there's a story that, Doug, I've heard you tell about you got uh -oh. hurt, you hurt your hamstring, Buck came out to help you off the field, and he was diagnosing the injury as he was helping you off the field. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, that, absolutely. 
Was I Fuck, right I'm or sure. Wrong? That was probably wrong. <laughs> Uh, I think you, yeah, you were a little off on that one. That was uh, well, we were yeah, we were playing the Angels, and yeah, I, I tore, that's where I tore my hamstring. I was running, limping to first, and and I think you asked me, well, where is it? Is it is it low down? If it's low down, that's just the day to day, and uh, I of course it was torn in half, but that's our, <laughs> but but we had we had uh, what was the name Conway, the doctor who had a couple of these other cases with Edgar Martinez and mm-hmm. Quincy Carter with the Cowboys. And he said, "If I ever see this again, I was gonna, I'm gonna have surgery." So, uh, so he did, and actually turned out pretty well. I yeah. came back in three and a half weeks. So you know I, I appreciate it. But you helped me off the field. He helped me off the field. <laughs> you know what happened? You know what happens there when you go out is you try not to get into this negative feeding frenzy where people, you know, oh, it's oh, it's awful. The world's coming to an end. You know, you try to be positive about it. I did. You know, I didn't want guys to think. Yeah. You know, I wanted to give them a positive spin on it as much as I can. It may not have been completely realistic, but I wanted to look at it with a cup half full instead of half empty. Oh, your season's over. Oh, it's awful. I, I, I just don't live in that world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, I, and I, I came back pretty quickly. Three About three and a half weeks, I was out playing, and then I did a couple weeks of rehab. Doug, I don't know if and, you remember uh, this. Met, I don't know if you remember met, this. About two weeks later, I jump up out of the dugout to go argue with an umpire at second base. And I popped my calf muscle. <laughs> and I'm about halfway to first base line, and I think somebody has thrown something from the stands and hit me in the calf. And I can barely – I'm dragging it out to the umpire. And I told the umpire, I'm starting to sweat. And he's laughing. He says, serves you right. You shouldn't have been out here. Now, i got to get back to the And I remember I, I will never not give sympathy to a player again about something like this on the, on the field. And I didn't. Okay, so who came back faster, you or Doug, from that? Oh, uh, Doug did. Believe me, I, I still got a, I still got a hole in the back of my cap because I had to manage the next play. I, I, I broke an ankle coming out of the dugout in Baltimore. Nobody even knew about this. I was running out there, and they had the, the holes in the ground from a, uh, these. You know, I have the people standing behind the home plate during batting practice, and they got these. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, strings and stuff that they run around to keep them. And when they pull it up, they've been putting it there. There's a hole. And I jump out of the dugout to go take the lineup up, and I put my ankle in that hole. And reason I know, I went back in there to get an x-ray, and I almost passed out. And Doc said, uh, pretty sure that's broken, Buck. I said, tape it up. Give me a shot of Toradol, and, uh, which is legal. Which is legal. And tape it tight so I got to get through the game. I got through the game and I never got it x-rayed. And he said, you know, that's broken. I said, just keep, t-. and it, it's, it still creaks and pops, but I didn't want the players to know that I, I missed two or three games <laughs> because I couldn't get from home plate to the dugout. That's just, that's, that's, that's foolish pride is what that is. Foolish pride. All right, man, you've proven you're a gamer and you've proven it to us. We've taken up way too much of your time. We're going to let wait this minute, bucks. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a what? Wait a We're minute. not going? Doug, Doug. You know we're in the midst of. Oh yeah. There's three guys here. Only one of them's in the Hall of Fame. You realize that? <laughs> Jason Starr. Oh wait, that's yes. me. That's you. I just want yes. to say it's about time. Hey, all all BS aside, Jace, you're one of those guys that should be there. Nice going. I'm glad they recognized it. Well, Absolutely. that 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 means awesome. a lot to me coming from you, man. There's nobody in the game that I respect yeah. and admire more than you, and I mean that. That's what you're doing here well, in Starkville. Well, <laughs> yes. that's why I, pre- I 
he was one of those guys, Doug, when you go, anybody, any other questions? And he'll go, yeah, I got one. You went, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and that's always the way I did it, too. I always let the, always let the beat writers ask their questions. Yeah. Then it was starting yeah. to die down. Buck thought he was just going to be able to escape the room. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I had Doug, some you know thoughts. What I would do? You know what I would do, Doug? I would, he would ask that question. I go, listen, is this the last one, Jason? Hey, Jace, let's go over here and, and I'll answer it over here. <laughs> so because true. I knew it wasn't something that I wanted all the beat writers to know about. That's, you know, and here's an, yeah. another trade secret, Jason, and I'll shut up. When a guy asks you a real tough question, Doug, okay, if you'll go, hmm, that's a great question, Jason. What do you think? Oh no! Because when you ask the turn, guy, when you ask turn most, most people what they think, they can't wait to tell you. And but Jason <laughs> would go, "Wait a minute! I didn't ask me. I asked you." Yeah. <laughs> Do you know how many times he did that, Doug? So many times. I, I remember we did a baseball story show a couple of years ago, and I went to ask you about the, it being the last year of your contract in Baltimore, and you asked me if it was the last year of my contract. <laughs> so. Yeah, That's Buck Showwater. Hey, take care, guys. Nice talking to you guys. Bucks. Yeah, Buck, great. Take care. We'll be yeah. in touch. It's, okay. Uh, really appreciate Buck, you visiting man. us here in the other Starkville, Buck. Thanks. Uh, Stark <laughs> Vegas. Take care, man. Bye-bye. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast, listener trivia. It's our way of involving you, our favorite listeners, in this show. Uh, and once again, this week, we are literally involving you. Uh, what we used to do was have me read your trivia question and obviously not do it justice. But now we've devised a much more brilliant idea. If we select your trivia question, we give you the opportunity to ask it to us live. It's your chance to achieve major podcast stardom merely by stumping us. And you know what? It's not that hard to do. We prove that every week. Uh, and this week, Doug, it's going to take more than one special guest trivia king to stump us. We've got two. Uh, these two guys came up with this question together, so we're bringing them both on here. Let's welcome in Mike Messenger, who submitted the question via Twitter, and he's brought along his friend, Ray Coccioli. That's pretty good. <laughs> Hi, guys. G gentlemen, welcome to Starkville. All right. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, for having us. Yeah, sure thing. Now, t I want you to tell us where you're from, what team you root for. I'm from <laughs> Dayo, New Jersey, and I am a uh, Yankees fan. Um, so I've been a Yankee fan since I was little. I'm still rooting for them. Um, I actually, uh, unfortunately, lost my job through this whole pandemic. Um, I've been in. So sorry. That's man. okay. You know, a lot of people are going through it. Um, but you know, I've been staying busy. Um, in the meantime, I have started my own podcast. So it's in the early goings. Uh, it's called Beers Behind the Curtain, uh, where we have a beer, usually promote that beer, talk movies, TV. Uh, usually have a specific movie topic or theme for the week, and usually we'll have a guest actor, uh, movie buff, writer, whatever it may be, um, and just try to have some fun. So definitely follow us on Twitter at Beers Behind. That's where we tweet our episodes out and have some other fun stuff. Um, we'll be doing an episode on baseball movies actually soon since baseball is coming back, which should oh, be yeah. fun. Hear that Doug, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, so I'm look, looking forward to that. Yeah, one. listen looking to that one. That Ray, one. Ray will probably be on uh, on that one as well. Um, so check it out. Uh, we're available on iTunes, Spotify. Message us after years behind. Follow us. Mike and I are friends from high school. Uh, I grew up in North Arlington, New Jersey. 
I live in Rutherford now. Uh, I'm a big Mets fan, and they give me a lot of agita. So we'll see what happens this year. <laughs> Hopefully, the 60 games we'll get an opportunity. Um, and I'm actually a vice principal, so um, right now I have a vacation day, so I'm off today. But uh, and we haven't had the kids in the building in a while, so that's been kind of a tough go for yeah. us. But we'll see what happens in the fall. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you guys are on. Uh, how did how exactly did you come up with this question together? And is there any chance there was beer involved? <laughs> I think there was. Right, right. I'll <laughs> take that. So, so uh, we were actually watching um, the NCAA tournament. It was the finals, Villanova, Michigan. And uh, that's in April, though. So we're watching, uh, you know, baseball's on and we're talking stats like we normally do. We're big baseball buffs. And we just so happened to run into this stat, like on baseball reference. So we didn't see it any other means other than kind of running into it, looking at hits leaders and, just kind of stumbled upon it. So let's see if you guys can get it. Yeah. Wish us luck. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The time has come to ask this week's Starkville trivia. So uh, I guess, Mike, I'll let you ask the question because a, you're the guy who sent it to us, but also this way, when you get it, when we get it wrong, we can blame the messenger. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Literally. literally. All right. So here we go. The only player in the history of Major League Baseball to lead the American League in hits one season and the National League hits another season. Okay, so the, there's only been one wow. player who has led both one leagues player. in hits, right? And you know what? My first reaction was, how can there be only one? But then I started thinking about it, okay? Like, I, I thought about all these guys who have gotten a lot of hits in this season you know, I ask a lot of trivia questions myself, so I know the the usual suspects. But okay, Wade Boggs, Pete Rose, Paul Molitor, Ichiro, Jeter, Tony Gwynn, Jose Altuve, Michael Young. I ran through all these guys, hmm. and uh, yeah. I mean, the problem is in their primes, none of them played in both leagues. Right, a lot of them played just for one team. Right. Okay, so now I'm starting yeah. to go through guys who had big years in both leagues. I thought about. Frank Robinson, thought about Vlad, Vlad Guerrero, thought about Dave Parker. None of them seem right. So I, I, I'm sure this guy is more obscure than anybody that I've just named. So I'm going to give you a guess that would be just a little bit off the wall. How about Al Oliver? I know he had big years in Texas. I'm thinking he might also have led the league in Pittsburgh early in his career or Montreal later in his career. Like, I'm sure it's wrong, but he's he just one of those famous human trivia answers from his era. So you have to admit, it's not a horrible yeah. guess. That's, yeah, that's... <laughs> Doug, you oh, got one? Oh, wow. Well, I, yeah, this is tough. I, I thought, I, you know, Miguel Cabrera... Uh, you know, Tigers, but he, you know, he was had a lot of prime years in Florida. I know he beat us up a lot with Philly. So I was trying to think. Those are two, and the the one obscure guy I was thinking. You remember Billy Miller? You know that scrappy switch hitter. Yeah, like never could walk this guy, but man, he could hit. And you know, he seemed like he was always up there in the hit leaders and all that. So ah, uh, but I I don't even know like how to even. <laughs> Just make a guess. We're going to get it wrong. What's the difference? All right. I mean, I'll, I'll go Miguel Cabrera. I'll just throw Miguel. All right. Uh, here comes the highlight of your day, guys. You get to tell us uh, how wrong we are. I, I'm, I'm assuming there's no chance it's either Miggy or Al Oliver, right? They both are wrong. Okay, so the answer is? Yeah. 
Lance right, Johnson. Oh, one dog. Yeah. Lance yeah. Johnson. He did it with. I uh, can't believe. He yeah. led the yeah. He led the American yeah, League with he... hits in 1995 with the White Sox. The White Sox. 186 hits, and then the next year he did it with the Mets with 227 hits. You know, I knew he had that huge year with the Mets where he got 220. What'd you say? 27. Yeah, hits? 227. Wow. And he had he yeah. had 20 triples that year too, right? 20 something. 21 triples. Wow. Man. I just didn't think he That's had another question. year like that, but. Yeah, White Sox. I never. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I thought yeah. I thought he was like gone. Wow. The White Sox. Yeah, he's kind of under the radar. Question. That's why. Yeah, question. we thought it was a great question because he really great question. Yeah, you kind of forget. All right, let, let let's call in the uh, the new evil mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim. Uh, hey, Mayor. Any chance you have a great highlight of Lance Johnson? You can play us. Hey guys, we sure do. And of course, we go back to one of those seasons when he did it in 1995. He actually um, was trailing in the hits down the stretch, but one big game helped give him the lead, and he never gave it back. In Minnesota, a six-hit game. Here's a listen. He's still trying to chase down Chuck Knobloch for the league, league, and hits. A little shank. And the left field. That's going to fall for a base hit. And now the ball bounces over Marty Cordova's head, Lance Johnson. And he will move into third. There's a base hit. So Lance, two for two, is now Brady. He's digging. They're going to wave him around. Lance on his way to third. He'll get there with a triple. Another one. Look that up. That get ball it. hit into the gap in left center field. Cordova races over. Can't get there. Three triples on the evening. The major league record is three. There you go. Three triples, <laughs> Three triples. six for wow. six in that game. Oh uh, one other note, though, uh, for Al Oliver, because you did mention Al Oliver, Jason, and he was close. So he finished fourth in the American League with Texas in 1980 with 209 hits. Wow. And he fourth? led the National League in 1982 yeah. uh, two like years later try. with the I Expos told you with two yeah. 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 So that was Hawk, Hawk uh, Harrison on the call, right? That was the, I think it's the only six for six, three triple game in the history of baseball. So Lance Johnson wow. did that. Nobody else ever did it. And the only guy ever to lead both the National League and American League in hits in a season, which, of course, we did not know. So we're going to let Mike <laughs> and Ray go back to their regularly scheduled lives, <laughs> drinking beer and arguing about movies. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, guys, thank you. And just so you know, we are going to yeah, blame thanks the Thanks a lot, guys. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you, yes, we'll blame I'll take the blame. Yes, thanks for having us on, guy. <laughs> hey, thank you. Thanks for the help. Great, great hey, question. Take care. So next week, this could be you asking us a question and laughing happily as we get it wrong. Uh, we'll tell you how to do that <laughs> a little later in the podcast. But first, one thing we try to do in this segment is use the trivia question to inspire a fun topic for the show. So, Doug, how why don't we do this this week? Uh, I made up a list of... All the active players who have led their league in hits exactly once. So we don't have guys like Altuve or Whit Merrifield on this list. Uh, I want you to decide who on this list is most likely to lead either league in hits again. Okay, here we go. They hear the names. Freddie Freeman, right. Charlie Blackman, Ozzy Albies, who did it last year, Gene Segura, D. Gordon, Matt Carpenter, Andrew McCutcheon, Starlin Castro, Ryan Braun, and Albert Pujols. It's a pretty long list, but I, I actually think there's only four realistic yeah. candidates. Uh, Freeman, Albies, Blackman, Segura. Something really odd would have to happen for one of the other guys to do it. Uh, one of my mottos is always pick the guy who plays in Colorado. So I'm, I'm going to take Charlie Blackman. Who you got, Doug? 
Yeah, I'm gonna have to second that choice. I mean, now we have this shortened season, so it could be weird. He could, you know, Everything win with a hundred hits. It's gonna be weird. But um, yeah, Blackman. I mean, Colorado, and this guy's aggressive and power and uh, yeah. So I, I, I'm gonna go with Charlie Blackman. Freeman. He's been banged up a little bit. Obviously, a great hitter. Albie's uh, switch hitting nightmare certainly for a lot of teams. But uh, a little streaky. And Segura, you know, it's a good pick. But I'm, I'm going to go Charlie Blackman. I yeah, like it. Just a lot of hits hanging out there at Coors Field. Just show up and you oh, go yeah. three for four. It's perfect. Doug, before we wrap this up, we've got big news, both about this podcast and the Athletics MLB Podcast Network, because exciting stuff is happening. So we're just going to tease you with it. Just watch our social media feeds this week for more details i'll just tell you that next monday on the show we'll have a lot more information for you and we're planning a special episode to help ring in opening day 2020 all right that's going to do it for this week starkville let's remind you again starkville is now available in its entirety absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. And if you'd like to read our eloquent work or the eloquent work of any of our incredible teammates, there's still no better sports writing being done anywhere than you'll find in the Athletic. So if you've ever thought about subscribing, Now's a fine time. You can get 40% off a one-year subscription by going to theathletic.com slash Starkville. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast, just like Mike Messenger and Ray Coccioli today. We're now inviting the listener who submits the most fun trivia question to join us right here on the podcast and prove once again there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. To do that, you just need to submit a great baseball trivia question. Here's how you do it. Uh, you could send it along via email uh, at starkvilleattheathletic.com, or you can do what Mike and Ray did today and hit us up on Twitter. If you wanted to tweet at Doug Glanville, Doug, how would they do that? Piece of cake, at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Spelled your name right again. I got uh, it. And I am at Jason S T, Jason with a Y S T. Just remember to hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. So Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Buck Showwater for visiting us. Thanks to Mike and Ray for the trivia question. Thanks to our new evil mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next week on Starkville. <laughs>